Do you have any interest in Jesus? People all over the world have for almost 2,000 years. Whether he's known as Jesus, Jesui, Isa, Jisu, Jesu, Jesus, Gisas, Yosa, Yesu, or Yeshua, the man is arguably the most important figure in all human history. Not only did his birth shape the calendar used globally today, but the instrument of his death is one of the most recognizable symbols in all history. But others are interested, others are interested in Jesus precisely because he is so well known. If you can show that Jesus is on your side, if you can present Jesus as a champion of your cause, if you can convince people that you speak for Jesus, you are far more likely to succeed. This has been the case with religious, political, social movements throughout history. It's also helped with selling books, selling movie tickets, and selling all sorts of other quote-unquote Christian commodities. Still others are interested in Jesus not because of his historical importance or impact or because they want to make him their poster boy, but because of the claims that are made about him. He can change your life. He can cleanse your heart. He can give you peace. And because he rose from the dead, he can give you hope in the face of death. As a once popular bumper sticker put it, no matter the question, the answer is Jesus. Do you have any interest in Jesus? If so, what's driving that interest? I'd like to share a relevant and hopefully helpful passage with you this morning from the New Testament, specifically from the Gospel of John. The New Testament is a collection of writings from the first century A.D. or C.E. that provide us with the earliest accounts of Jesus' life and words and the movement he began. Let me read to you from John chapter 6, verses 16 through 35. To understand the flow here. I think it's helpful to break this passage down into a few parts. So let me read that first part verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his, Jesus' disciples, went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark And Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. 
So clearly, this is an astounding account. In fact, the phrase or the idea of walking on water comes from this very story. But is it true? Is it true? Did it really happen? It's important to understand that this story, along with all of the other stories in the New Testament, are presented as eyewitness accounts. They are not presented as literary fictions. They are not presented as fantastical embellishments. Notice this is not set in a world of unicorns or hobbits. Did you see that? This is our world. This is the world where people are scared when they see a man walking towards them on the water. So if we take this account at face value, then our next question should be, why? Why? Why did Jesus walk on the water in order to join his disciples instead of simply getting in the boat with them earlier? Well, the writer of the gospel is clear about why he's collected these accounts, accounts like this. He wants to present powerful signs that confirm the radically unique identity of Jesus to his readers. Powerful signs. Now, no matter the the culture or the period in history, walking on water is a powerful sign. But for the Jewish men in this boat, as we read about in this account, for these Jewish men, this astounding event would have pointed them to passages from the Hebrew Bible, passages like Job chapter 8 verse Job chapter 9 verse 8, which describes how it is God who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the ways of the sea. And that's not the only passage like that. Surely this man, Jesus, was more than just a miracle worker. But look at where the passage takes us next. Verse 22. On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat, that boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, those boats that had come from Tiberias, and they went across to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Okay, the crowd mentioned here are just some of the thousands, just some of the thousands that Jesus had miraculously fed with bread in the opening verses of this very chapter. These are just some of those thousands. This seems likely since it's unlikely that the other boats mentioned in verse 23, it's unlikely that there were that many of those boats that it was transporting, right? It wasn't an armada of boats transporting over 5,000 people. No, these were just some of the people who had been there. Now, There's no need to linger on this passage, verses 23 through 24. 
it really just serves to connect the first part of this passage with the third part of this passage. That's not to downplay its importance. It's, it's critical that we understand how John is tying the sign in verses 16 through 21 with the sight. The sight he provides, Jesus provides in the last section here, verses 25 through 35. It's important we see that connection. So as we look at this third part, this last section, I want you to notice how John has shaped the account that we just, that we're going to look at, how he shaped the account around three questions that the crowd puts to Jesus. I also want you to keep in mind the first question that I asked you this morning. Do you have an interest in Jesus? Listen as I read, starting in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, the crowd found Jesus. They said to him, question one, Rabbi, which means teacher, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you. I think that means something like, pay attention to what I'm saying. You can be sure of this. You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, question two, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Question three, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, that's the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven But my Father gives, gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you see how Jesus ignores their first question? (laughs) He ignores their first question and right away points out the problem with their motives. What was their interest in Jesus? Well, according to Jesus, their interest was driven by their stomachs. Verse 26, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
having an interest in Jesus, seeking Him out, wanting to be sure, wanting to be with Him, is in and of itself not enough. Why is that? Because you may be coming for all the wrong reasons, but even worse, leaving with all the wrong conclusions. Let me say that again. Why is having an interest in Jesus, seeking Him out, wanting to be with Him, in and of itself not enough? Because you may be coming for all the wrong reasons, but even worse, leaving with all the wrong conclusions. Jesus does not want that to happen here. So He challenges this crowd. He challenges this crowd to expend their energies on lasting nourishment, not temporary pleasures. Verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Where will this kind of forever food, this forever kind of food come from? Which the Son of Man will give you, says Jesus. Why look to Jesus for this kind of nourishment? For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. That is, Jesus has been distinguished as God's fully authorized representative. According to the previous chapter, the miracles of Jesus, the Hebrew Bible, and God Himself in history all have testified, they all testify to this fact that Jesus is God's duly authorized representative. Or as Jesus put it, for on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Now, If this crowd is anything, they are practical. They are practical. So they ask in verse 28, what must we do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Expecting some list of good works, some outline toward moral reformation. Jesus' answer here undoubtedly tripped them up. Verse 29, this is the work of God. You want to know what you can do? You want to know how to expend your energy? I'll tell you right now. This is the work of God that you believe. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. They wanted precepts and practices. Instead, Jesus called them to faith and faith alone. To simply place their trust in Him as the one God had sent. But here's where the crowd seems to get a little presumptuous. Even though they had enjoyed the bread that Jesus had miraculously multiplied in the opening verses of this chapter, they pressed Jesus for even more. Do you see that? They press Jesus for even more. Verse 30, uh, then what sign do you do? You want us to believe? Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Y- yes, they ate bread, 
But their ancestors had eaten bread from heaven. (laughs) They had bread miraculously multiplied, but their ancestors had eaten bread from heaven. If Jesus was really the prophet like Moses that God had promised, see verse 14 of this chapter, then he should be able to give them not just bread, but heavenly manna like the Israelites enjoyed in Exodus chapter 16. How does Jesus respond to this stipulation? He offers them not just bread from heaven like that manna in the desert. No, He offers them the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven. What is this bread? Verse 33. It is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. As Jesus declares in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you have any interest in Jesus? If so, what's driving that interest? The corrective Jesus offers the crowd here is a corrective for us as well. It's a corrective for us as well. Jesus says, if you're coming to me in order to get anything less than eternal life, if you're coming because you see me as some heavenly means to accomplish your earthly ends, if you're coming to me and ultimately seeking something other than me, then you need to, to borrow a popular phrase, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. We are sadly the kinds of creatures who so often prefer a full stomach that is a comfortable, successful, enjoyable, physical slash material life. We prefer a full stomach in the here and now over a full heart through faith in light of what is to come. Thus, there are many today who are coming or who have come to Jesus because they ate their fill of the loaves. That is because Jesus provided them with a solid moral compass. Or they felt emotionally stirred. Or because a church helped them repair their damaged marriage. Or because religion reconnected them with a family member or family traditions or an earlier, easier chapter of their life. Or because a church made them feel good about themselves again. Or because they like the music, because they found community, because they found intellectual stimulation, or they simply felt good about adding a box to their checklist, a box labeled spirituality. Can we find Jesus through such things? Of course. But in many cases, we simply go to such 
things, not through them. Tragically, these good things become destinations rather than doorways. Please know this. Without fail, those who are looking for a Messiah to fill their stomachs will be ultimately disappointed with the one who ultimately came to fill our hearts. And yet, right now, the words of Jesus still ring down through the centuries, asking us today, asking you today, why would you settle? Why would you settle for what cannot truly fill you and what will not truly last when abundant eternal life is offered to you from me and in me? Remember how Jesus worded his corrective in verse 26. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, these profound and powerful signs were meant to reveal something profound and powerful about the one who performed them. Think about it. This crowd crossed the lake in boats in order to get some kind of earthly fullness from the one who crossed the lake by walking on the water. Do you see the problem with this? With their motives? In light of that stunning truth, how could any of us not be driven by the who in this passage instead of the what? In awe of Him, not simply the sign. Gripped by Jesus Himself, not, what's, not simply what we can get from Jesus. Are you hungry today? I mean really hungry with a deep spiritual hunger that nothing in this world could ever satisfy. If you are, then hear again the words of Jesus. I, I am the bread of life. Whoever, isn't that wonderful? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this declaration, this declaration by Jesus is just the first of seven similar statements, each one Equally profound and powerful. Look at these. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. John 6.35 I am the light of the world, John 8.12 I am the door or the gate, chapter 10, verse 9. I am the good shepherd, chapter 10, verse 11. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11, verse 25. I am the way and the truth and the life. Chapter 14, verse 6. I am the vine. Chapter 15, verse 1. 
No one has ever spoken like this. No one has ever spoken like this. No one has done what Jesus has done. The seven signs preserved and explained in the Gospel of John, these were only the beginning. This book famously concludes with Jesus offering up His life on a Roman cross. And then on the third day, after being killed, rising again from the dead. The bread of life broken that each of us might be fed. Raised to life that we might truly live. As another New Testament writer explained it, for Christ also suffered once for sins, though righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 What good news that He might bring us to God. When you understand all that we've been talking about this morning, it is not surprising that this one life has made such an incomparable impact on countless lives all over the world and throughout history. So, what is your interest in Jesus? He is calling you to come. Not so you can bring your list, but so you can be nourished by His life. So that you can know Him. So that you can love Him. So that you can follow Him. What can you do? What should you do? This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom God has sent. It's time to turn from that stomach-driven, stomach-defined life and bring your deepest hunger to the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Won't you trust Him today?